Welcome to the moment that changed everything, where we interview notable creative people to gain insights into how they got started and learn more about the moments that shaped them and their careers. Today, we sit down with Lauren Gertner, businessman, architect, brand builder, serial entrepreneur, and global dreamer, who's trained as an architect, went into the family Schmata business, turned a clothing manufacturer into a fashion brand, and started dabbling in cannabis 30 years ago. Today, he worships great design and has started and built a number of great brands, as well as advising countries about a new economy in cannabis agriculture throughout the world. Today, Lauren joins us as we talk about creativity and business smarts that brought him along his journey to where he's now known as the godfather of cannabis. Lauren Gertner is a businessman, an architect, a brand builder, serial entrepreneur, and global dreamer whom I'd have to say my claim to fame is that I went to high school with him. Lauren, I'd like to welcome you, welcome you to the moment that changed everything. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. So in our program, we talk to people about the moments that shape their lives, their careers. Um, and many of our guests are involved in creative fields. You've had four successful careers. Okay. What did you want to be when you were a kid? Um, I was born to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I think that um, my father was an entrepreneur and um, quickly I gravitated towards him and him being an entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, then it was my mother um, who was the other big influence. And so my father being an immigrant um, to Canada and uneducated, his most important thing was that his children had an education. And he basically, my parents made it clear that I needed to have a profession. And uh, combined with the entrepreneurship, my mother recognized early that I had a creative eye bent and she directed that creativity into exploring that. And uh, along the line, um, uh, she, we decided that I was going to be an architect. So did you build stuff as a kid? Was it? Um, I was just creative. I drew, but I didn't draw well. Um, but I went to art school when I was like 12 or 13. And then I uh, painted in Florence when I was 14. Um, and then I went to the Banff School of Fine Arts when I was 15. Um, and then I ended up at Harvard when I was 16 in a career discovery course about architecture. You're kidding. So you went to U of T for architecture? I went to University of Toronto for architecture. Which was an extremely tough program to get into. Yeah, it, it was um, very difficult at the time. It was architecture was going through a major transition and U of T was going through a major transition as an architecture school. And um, it wasn't a place that uh, was for people like me. <laughs> it, it was a very, very creative, intellectual, program and I wasn't used to that. Uh, so um, I learned more probably in architecture school than I learned anywhere else. It was a transformative experience. It was a moment that changed my life. So, okay, so what, what didn't jive? Obviously you had the bent for design. Which what you... didn't drive what was what I made my mission to be, which was to combine design with business. So architecture school for me was about academia. It was forget about the business, just, you know, um, uh, architecture has this part of it that um, you do everything for the good of the people, right? There's a nobility to it. And I was always business driven. And in architecture school, I didn't understand that there was a business of architecture. And when most kids were um, playing soccer and hockey and all of that, when I was 14, I went to work in a retail store. 
and I've been playing retail, you know, um, my whole life. And I learned early on that retail was a contact sport. And <laughs> so combining that with, you know, um, architecture was really important to me to be able to find my place in it. And to find my place was about what I'll call sort of the front end of architecture, which is the business, get the work, you know, um, develop the clients, um, build a business out of the creative talent. And a lot of that came from, you know, after architecture school, I spent 10 years working for my father in the women's clothing business. And that was all about design and business. My father was a genius in that he recognized that the combination of both created margin. And a pant is a pant is a pant, but if the pant was designed by Yves Saint Laurent, it was a different pant. Right. And so, you know, that drove my, you know, career in that direction. It was always about, you know, design excellence, you know, the business about using design excellence. Do you still use a lot of your architecture degree today? I use it in everything I do because what it taught me was how to build something. And I'm a brand builder, a business builder, a city builder. Uh, all of that was because I learned how to build something. And, you know, building something, you have to have a solid foundation and you have to have all of the pieces that fit together. A business isn't any different. Your life isn't any different. You know, yeah, if you don't have the foundation, you know, so it, it was, I use it in everything I do. So as an architect, I mean, I didn't study architecture. I thought of going into it at one point, but I think it's critically, you learn how to think in a linear fashion. Is that right? Yeah, I, I always say people, it's how to solve a complex set of issues in an organized way. Okay. Okay. So let's go back. I mean, you're, you're in your twenties. And if I remember correctly, this is a number of decades ago, you decided to build a medical marijuana business, which I remember a couple of my friends and I thought we'd buy a share each just because we thought the annual general meeting would be a lot of fun. Um, how did that come about? Um, in 1998, uh, the government of Canada was forced through a class action suit to provide medical marijuana. And I had been uh, uh, a user of marijuana for a long time. And I read about that and I was fascinated by that. And I started researching into that and realized that uh, this was probably going to be the biggest disruption in my life. And that uh, it was something I wanted to do. It combined all my business skills. And so I spent from 98 till 2001, really sort of doing research. I learned everything I possibly could about where cannabis or marijuana was at that time. And, uh, Along the way, I met people, and in 2001, I wrote a thesis um, that was to create a medical marijuana company and um, to build a business and a market around that. And so that was my first entry into it. That company was called Canasat, and we bought 25% of a company that had the rights to grow medical marijuana in Canada. It was only one company at the time. It had won an RFP from the Canadian government to grow it. And I went out and I was like, the guy liked the razor, so I bought the company. And uh, with that, we built a, um, a plan. And the plan was to create alternative delivery systems for medical marijuana. And so we invented the vape pen the patch, the gum, um, a whole array of devices and systems to be able to use medical marijuana other than smoking it. So, okay, let's go back. But if you take the context of 30 years ago, am I right-ish? 
with my math anyway if you take the context of what it was at the time didn't it you were like the lone voice in this um yeah i was the lone voice but i had a lot of knowledge and i knew a lot and um i learned early on that you believe in yourself right and you invest in yourself and part of it was a journey, Lori. I mean, I was at the time um, almost 40, and I had been successful in a number of careers, and um, I had hired an executive coach to help me figure out what I wanted to do in my life. And so we had made a list of a whole bunch of things that were important to me. I wanted to create a business in my backyard. I wanted to do it in Toronto. I wanted it to be a billion dollar opportunity. I wanted it to change the world. Um, I wanted it to be something that I was one with, that I understood. Um, I wanted it to be, so there was a shopping list. And uh, somewhere in, I think it was 2001, uh, Moses Neimer, showed up at my doorstep and we were partners in a business and I was partners with Joe Memran in another business. And Moses Neimer said to me, Hey Lauren, they're going to legalize medical marijuana. You and Joe are the club Monaco of retail. You should create a retail business around cannabis. So that was another moment. And I thought about it and I thought that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> this incredible retail career. But I went back to my coach and I was having uh, lunch with her and I said, you know, this story. And she said, stop, let's look at our list. And it met all the criteria on the list. You're kidding. So, but at the time though, as if I, I keep going back to the time, nobody thought there would be a future except for medical marijuana. Yeah, nobody did. But, you know, I, I somehow passionately believed that uh, not only was there a medical marijuana business, but there was a recreational marijuana business. I mean, it existed. It, it was deep in the, call it gray black market. And, you know, we were starting to see information where um, people were using it a lot more than I thought, a lot more than anybody thought. You know, 1998, we started doing surveys and all of a sudden, you know, 30% of the population was in favor of legalization. And all of a sudden, you know, one in 10 people were admitting that they were using marijuana. One in 10 people were admitting that they were breaking the law every day, right? right? And so I saw these moments and each moment encouraged me to keep going. I mean, there was a lot of negativity. There was a lot of people that said I was crazy. There were people that in those days called me a drug dealer. They didn't want to be around me. However, you were more of a farmer than a drug dealer. Yeah, it, it, we were, but the stigma then was so, um, uh, it was so bad, you know, um, uh, and I grew up dealing with stigma. You know, I'm the son of an immigrant, you know, um, uh, saw the, you know, the, uh, my father and the Holocaust and, you know, part of, you know, um, I would say in those days, Jews lives matter, right? <laughs> okay. And yeah. I was out of that era and that's why education was so important to my parents and all of that. But I, I just, you know, fundamentally, I saw that this was an opportunity to change the world and all the pieces were there. And so I believed in my conviction. So the first retail business you had with um, marijuana, was that Tokyo Smoke? That was Tokyo Smoke, but I had been in the business a long time. Right, so it started out in a container. Started out as a clothing brand. Oh, I didn't know that, okay. So, um, uh, a uh, company in Montreal, sort of second generation, um, wanted to create a contemporary clothing brand. And um, I had, you know, just come off working with Joe Memran for a whole bunch of years. And um, uh, uh, John Sebastian Octo, the gentleman 
um, who approached me said, would you create a brand for me? And so it started as a clothing brand. Uh, where'd the name come from? It came from my love of Tokyo, my love of smoke. It came from, uh, he had had some creative firm do something around the uh, word smoke. And I didn't think I could trademark that name. And um, through a series of conversations, very quickly, uh, I wrote down the name Tokyo Smoke. And I wrote the circle, um, the sun. And I'd been going to Tokyo for years and years and years. And it had been a huge influence on my design. And um, from that, went to a creative agency who came up with the sort of uh, elongated oval. Um, and then it just, uh, so started out as clothing. Um, like any clothing brand, you have to have a retail store to launch it. Uh, somehow I was traveling around the world and I was seeing what was happening in coffee. We were going from first wave coffee to second wave to third wave. What is first, second and third wave coffee? If you go back 20 years ago, coffee was coffee. It was a singular item and it was generally black and it was defined by its strength. This has a lot to do with cannabis, but let's talk about coffee first. And so, you know, when you drank a cup of coffee, you would say, whew, that's good, that's strong, right? And that's what defined coffee to you and me and the rest of the world. Okay. Second wave coffee was Starbucks coming along and creating a language saying, you know, people don't really understand coffee. They get a cup. Is there a shot? How much coffee's in there? And they started to define, you know, shots and, you know, uh, a language, cappuccino, frappuccino, all of that. And they created a language on how to understand coffee. And today, everybody in the world knows what their dose of coffee is. You know, I have one coffee a day. Some people have four. Some people have none. But everybody understands dosing. So third wave coffee was independent artisanal coffee shops. And as I was traveling around the world building this brand, inevitably, I ended up in one of those third wave coffee shops. And so as I was thinking about retail and a store to launch this brand, I had this idea that I would do it in a coffee shop. So now I was talking about clothing and coffee. And somewhere along the line, I was already, uh, had started my second cannabis company. This was what I call Cannabis 2.0. And I realized that brands were gonna be what it was all about. And I wanted to create a cannabis brand. And there I was thinking, okay, why don't I combine all of these efforts? And Tokyo Smoke became a clothing, coffee, and cannabis brand. And I started to fall in love with this idea of high margin, legal, and addictive. So fashion, high margin, legal, and addictive. Coffee, high margin, legal, and addictive. And cannabis, high margin, about to become legal, and thought I'm putting those three together. And I you know, thought a lot about you know, the notes you sent me and a moment that changed my life, that really changed my life was Pierre, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying, I, we in Canada are gonna legalize cannabis. And when I started in 2002, I did not honestly believe that, I mean, I believed it, but I, had no idea when that was going to happen. And that changed my life. But that's like a 16-year overnight success. Yeah, somebody said to me, you know, hey, Lauren, you made a lot of money, right? Um, and I said, yeah, you know, um, I did. And they said, well, if you divide that by 40, you're not such a big shot. You know, I spent 40 years pioneering this dream and not making money doing that. You know, um, I, I uh, made enough money to, 
you know, live and stuff like that. But I put all my eggs into one basket. You had no idea, though, that it would be any time in our lifetime that it would be legalized. Yeah, no, I, I believed it would be in our lifetime. I just didn't. Um, and, you know, as each year unfolded and different things came to light, I believed more and more. So by 2011, I knew that cannabis was going to be legalized. Trudeau hadn't said it, but I could see it happening around the world. The polls were at that point saying 75% of Canadians believe in legalization. Now it was like one in four people were admitting that they were breaking the law. So, you know, there was a lot leading up to it that kept, you know, reaffirming me that this was going to happen. Let's go back to your first Tokyo Smoke shop. It was in a, it was in a container? It was in a shipping container. So um, where did that come from? That came from... Uh, I had started to teach a course... Um, at the University of Toronto Daniel School of Architecture Design. Um, and that course was about uh, architecture as an entrepreneurial practice. That's the name of the course. And um, part of it was telling the students, create a business plan and use a building, um, use architecture as a way to uh, define the business. And so as I was teaching that, I was starting to uh, think about that in terms of my own context of what I was doing. And I've been in love my whole life and grown up my whole life around what I call old shitty brick and beam buildings. Right? <laughs> and um, uh, my father had factories in those buildings um, and I love those buildings. And, Along the way, I've been able to accumulate a few of those buildings. And I had a building that um, uh, I owned at um, Queen and Strawn. And it was a, um, a building that was made up of four different buildings. And there was a loading dock in the back of it. And the tenant had moved out. And there was this space really small, it was, you know, maybe 400 square feet. And um, I'd been looking at different spaces to open a coffee shop, um, to launch this clothing line. And I thought, I don't want to spend this crazy amount of money. And uh, Stephen Fong, who's an architect who I was teaching the course with said, you know, why don't we just put it in a shipping container and slip it in this space. And so that was, what we did, you know, we went and bought a shipping container from Giant and it was basically an half a shipping container. So a shipping container is essentially eight by 20. Um, we took eight by 10, which is really seven by nine when you finish it inside. And we figured out how to put everything you needed to make a third wave coffee into the space. And uh, that two people could work it and um, I remember as we were doing it, we, we were sort of ordering the stuff and I thought, fuck, two people can't, it, it, it won't work. And at that point, I taped it out on my floor and uh, my partner and I at the time sort of pretended we were doing it to make sure it worked. It was a, a, um, a complex puzzle. But it's 63 feet. I mean, with the two people, a little space and a counter, you filled the whole thing up. That was it. And so we put that shipping container in this space that was maybe twice the size. So we had a little uh, um, area that people could sort of um, wait in line inside to get their coffee. And then around that, we basically made it a contemporary head shop. So we sold the most interesting designed uh, um, paraphernalia around cannabis. So who were your customers? Were they coffee customers? Were they clothing customers? Or are they cannabis customers? They were curious. Interesting. So they were fundamentally, they came there because, you know, we had decided early on that whatever we were doing, we were going to be great at it. 
So if we were gonna make coffee, we were gonna make an incredible cup of coffee. And so they came for the coffee, but they also came for the conversation. And by the time we had done that, we were firmly had built this idea about building a community. And that if we could build a community and we could use that to educate people about what was coming in terms of cannabis, that's how you build a brand. At what point do you know that, did you know that it, was, it might be successful? I think when my son, uh, I had started it as this clothing, coffee. I had sort of opened the uh, coffee shop and my son, Alan said, you know, dad, I'd like to be your partner in this. I'd like to co-found this as a cannabis company with you. Um, that was a moment um, for sure, because I had been pioneering this myself. There had been other people that were part of it, but um, there was nobody at that point who was what I believed the customer I wanted to build this brand around had I been able to attract that talent into the industry. So in 2011, 2012, it was really hard to get anybody who to leave these expensive jobs at call it McKinsey or Google or, you know, any of those companies to join me on the journey. And when Alan did that, it opened up, you know, a huge amount of talent and people that were willing to take the risk. It's hard to, you know, get somebody who's the chief creative officer at Barney's. <laughs> and I'm gonna leave that job to join this crazy guy on this journey who wants to build a cannabis brand. You talked about a few minutes ago, the connection between coffee and cannabis. How does it, how do the two relate together? Um, so much about what I just told you is that we looked at how coffee went from first wave to second wave to third wave, and then used that as a precedent for how we would take cannabis from first wave to second wave to third wave. Where did that idea come from? Because that's kind of extraordinary when you think about it. Well, we looked at, you know, by that time, now, you know, I'm 10 years into the industry, we're looking at all the precedents. So coffee, alcohol, you know, any of the highly regulated drugs, you know, we looked at them and how, you know, they evolved and looked strongly to coffee as a precedent, looked strongly to, you know, again, high margin, legal, addictive, right? Highly regulatory, you know, and watched how they did that and used that for lots of decision-making. The same as we looked at alcohol, you know, we had seen, I didn't live through it personally, but I came at the end of it, like you did, you know, the end of prohibition. And I remember people saying to me early on, like, you know, how are you gonna do this? And I said to them, hey, listen, I remember going into, you know, an alcohol store, you know, 40 years ago, and you went in and there was a guy in a white coat and there was a book with pictures in it. And then there was a pad and you said, you know, you wrote it out yourself, you know, one 12 ounce bottle of Chivas Regal and you would hand it to the guy, you would pay for it and he would go in the back and he would bring it out. That company today is one of the most sophisticated retailers in the world. That's the LCBO, right? Yeah. So, you know, we had those precedents to look at that and believe that we would do the same thing. Um, say I've never smoked weed before. How would you, where would I start? You would start with what we created, um, which is what I would call supervised consumption, okay? You, you would go to a professional and you would get educated. And there's clinics all over the world today where you can go to one of those clinics and they will do a medical and they will talk to you about, you know, why you wanna do this or why they think you should do this. 
and then they will educate you to the point where you're comfortable using it. And probably, not probably, you should never use it alone, right? For your first time, you, you need to be um, in a supervised setting. Um, let's move on to something, Lauren, for a second. So cannabis is sort of becoming a brand new economy. It is created something that wasn't really there before. I mean, I shouldn't say it wasn't there before, but it wasn't for the consumption that's necessary now. Also, it kind of revitalizes to a certain extent agriculture, um, you know, which hasn't been something that we've really looked at other than just feeding ourselves. Where did the part start where you looked at this and said, okay, we're actually creating something new that hasn't been done before. We're creating jobs. We're creating yeah, I, I watched it and watched it. I was part of it in Canada where we went from this black market to this legal market and watched, you know, thousands of jobs getting created, right? Today, hundreds of thousands of jobs are in the Canadian cannabis industry, right? It's a meaningful percentage of the working population. And by creating that, that creates taxes, that creates, you know, um, construction, it creates all of this economy around creating this industry. And we saw it happen in Canada. And then as we started looking at it globally, we saw that what we could had done in Canada we could do in many places, almost every place in the world. And we saw what had happened in most countries around the world. We saw in the past 20 years, um, including Canada, our primary industries get devastated. So if you go to, you know, an easy example is Hawaii. You know, in Hawaii, 90% of the pineapples worldwide came from Hawaii. And I can't remember, 20% of the sugar cane came from Hawaii. Today, there is no pineapples growing for export in Hawaii, okay? There is no sugar cane. I can't remember the amount of jobs. Maybe there were half a million jobs in a couple of million people population that were around that industry, gone, devastated. All of a sudden, we come along and we start growing cannabis and we start taking land, in fact, some of the dole land, okay? And we start creating jobs, and we start creating retail stores, and we start paying tax, and all of a sudden, there's a new economy that didn't exist, but has the potential to replace the primaries devastating industries. Jamaica the same, you know, Jamaica was, you know, everything from bananas to sugar cane to bauxite, devastated. Today we employ 500 people, just us in our company in Jamaica. And again, we're vertically integrated. So it's agriculture, it's retail, it's consumer products, it's construction, it's all of that. And, you know, uh, one of the most transformative experiences of my life was going to Africa. And somewhere along the line, I had met um, uh, somebody from Lesotho and he had this passionate dream um, to build a global sustainable economy there. And, you know, Lesotho had been, you know, 20% uh, um, of the population in that country works, 80% lives off the land. Okay. Second or third poorest economy in the world, second largest AIDS population in the world. And I had the opportunity to go there and create one of the best medical marijuana companies in the world. And not only, these people didn't know what a toilet was before. Um, we built toilets, we built schools, we educated them as well as created jobs. And these are people that used to walk one day a month to get a bucket of water. And when they come to work today, they have a shower before they go to work. At the end of the day, they have a shower, they get fed, 
In Lesotho, I think we basically work seven days, but four of them are work, three of them are education. If they can't pass the education, they can't work. So it, it, it's, um, uh, those are, you know, opportunities to make the world a better place. And in each of these cases, I have to say this to you, Larry, is if you went into any of the facilities that I've talked about, they're spotless. The design was a huge part of what made them successful. So not only are you creating sort of the manufacturing side of it, um, what about the distribution? Does it stay within the country? Today it does, okay. Uh, Canadians were the only people I think today in the world actually exporting. Um, but again, over the next uh, three to five years, we'll be a completely global economy around that and people will export and import all different products from around the world because it will depend on where's the best place to grow, where's the best place to manufacture, all of that stuff that we've seen in every other industry is starting to happen in this industry. With all the expertise you've gained, you know, for 40 years, who's coming to you for ideas? Who's? Who's coming to you? In other words, you know, we're not talking about marketing marijuana any longer. We're talking about creating a brand new economy. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, um, this is sort of part of what I wanted to talk about today is um, over the past 25 years or whatever, I've earned the sort of title of the godfather of cannabis. And um, we're going into what I'll call third wave or cannabis 3.0. And um, we have as a family, um, you know, 50 plus investments in that industry. And they range from, you know, called technology based to product based to retail based to brand based. Um, and my role in that today is more as a manager of those investments. What really um, uh, I've been doing for the past year is pivoting myself from being the godfather of cannabis to being a pioneer in the psychedelics industry. And um, I had a, call it epiphany, I don't know what's the right thing, but in uh, January of 2019, um, I was in Davos and I was speaking there about cannabis and I was at a table with some of the smartest people in the world and they started talking about mental illness and psychedelics and how there was a disruption coming, huge disruption coming in the way we were treating mental illness. And after that conversation, not long after I read the book, How to Change Your Mind by Richard Pollan. And I would recommend to anybody who listens to this conversation, if there's one takeaway, read that book. It changed my life. And uh, shortly after that, I was in um, Africa, um, in Cape Town, and I was at a conference that was again, talking about uh, change and disruption across every industry. And there was a guy there, um, actually Richard Pollan was there, and a guy named Rick Dobbin was there, and a number of other people who were the leading people in the psychedelic industry. And I had the chance to meet them and listen to them. And uh, by the middle of 2019, I had made a decision in my life that my focus for the next 10, maybe 20 years, was going to be around psychedelic industry and around mental health. So for our, for our viewers that don't know, what is the psychedelic industry? Uh, the psychedelic industry is based around, call it four psychedelics. There's more, but the common ones that you would be familiar with are LSD, MDMA, ketamine, and psilocybin. And they are all, you know, um, in the case what we're doing, it's uh, psilocybin based. And it's a natural extension from cannabis in a lot of ways because it's a plant-based medicine. 
But if you um, look at what's happened, there's, you know, it started in the 50s, um, even earlier, where people started experimenting with these drugs. And they started realizing that it was all about what they were doing to your neurological system. And that by breaking patterns and by using these as disruptors, they actually had a significant effect on people that were suffering for mental illness. And then with the war on drugs, you know, same thing that happened to cannabis, they shut it down. And for 20 years, nobody could legally experiment with those drugs. Over the past 15 years, some of the smartest people in the world at the best institutions have started to realize that uh, by using these drugs, you can change the way we treat mental illness. And so on a big scale, uh, there's a company called Compass, there's a number, another company called MAPS, one's for-profit Compass, one's non-for-profit, these companies are entering into phase three clinical trials that show that after, call it seven sessions, therapy sessions, call it four of them drug-induced and then three of them not, um, but all related to um, uh, your mental illness, is that more, somewhere in the neighborhood of 62% of those people are showing that they are cured from post-traumatic stress disorder. That is unbelievable. It, it, it's because today what we do is we prescribe bad medicines to people that have any kind of mental illness. And those medicines have all kinds of side effects. And it's a vicious circle on how it works because you go to a psychiatrist, he puts you on one of these known drugs, and then you know, you, you're just on that drug, okay? There's really no therapy that's related to that drug. Where in our case, it's about a therapy and about a drug that's a, you know, call it a natural molecule. And in the case of what we're doing um, in, in this new company that I've created uh, is we're, pioneering a daily drug that will replace the what I'll call the nasty drugs that people take on a daily basis that suffer from de depression, severe anxiety, that whole world. You know, it's kind of interesting. You've kind of come full circle. You started medical marijuana and now you're returning essentially to your roots again. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, uh, um, you know, I believe strongly in, you know, you're meant to do these things. And um, there's a lot more stuff, personal stuff, because everybody has personal stories around mental illness and all of that, mm -hmm. that um, started me on the marijuana thing, um, industry, and are taking me to where I am today. And it's all about dealing with pain, anxiety, sleep, um, and, uh, you know, we, everybody I know um, has one of those issues, yeah. okay? Yeah. And so um, early on, I realized that cannabis played a role in those, um, but this is about mental illness, and this is about depression, and, and that's a drug. Um, and cannabis, uh, while I passionately believed that it was about the drug, and there's only a couple of successful pharmaceutical companies today in the cannabis space, it became about recreation. And that was wonderful, but it isn't a drug that treats people where, and I believed it would be, right? Um, but 
I know that psychedelics will be. What's the name of the psychedelic company? It's called um, uh, Canna Global Wellness. And we're in the process of going through massive rebranding because um, it started out as a sort of cannabis holding company and it's quickly becoming a psilocybin company. And so we've just bought a company called Sincero Life Sciences. It's probably one of the most exciting businesses I've ever seen in my life. And uh, we're acquiring that business and they are in the, as I explained to you in the life sciences business, not on the therapy side because that's expensive, takes a long time and we're not looking for a cure. We're looking for a daily medicine that replaces what is currently used. The second business we bought in this holding company is a retreat clinic business. So last year they did uh, seven retreats in Jamaica where you microdose uh, psilocybin. And then, uh, and, and that's again what we call supervised consumption. When I talked about it in cannabis, you never use a psychedelic without supervised consumption. And who are the people that are coming to this? You, me, curious people. And how would I find out about, how would I find out about it? It would be... Because um, everybody, you know, because um, uh, it's current, because it's like, you know, um, uh, you know, like the music festivals that people like Burning Man and all of those things, it's one of those things that's emerging really, really fast. And there's, you know, incredible retreats and uh, there's only like four or five countries now where it's legal to consume psilocybin. Uh, that would be Holland, Jamaica, Costa Rica, uh, Colorado, and California. And again, legal's not the word, but um, you're allowed to have these supervised consumption experiences. So there's, you know, retreats popping up and other businesses popping up. And so that's a second vertical that we're passionate about. The third vertical is what we call the functional mushroom business. So non-psychedelic, just mushroom-based, food that we would say is good for your brain, food that builds your immunity system. So it starts with tinctures, um, mushrooms that you know that we eat every day that are extracted into a um, compound, okay? And you take that with you know, um, your coffee or with a shake or you eat them as you know, mushroom toast and a bunch of other things. And that is becoming this huge consumer product business. You can buy them on Amazon. There's a bunch of emerging companies. Um, and we're one of those emerging companies. So we have a brand. Um, it's called A Good Mushroom. And uh, we have product that you take. And we will, uh, in the next 60 days, open the first mushroom store in the world. Where's that? And that'll be at Bathurst and College Street. You're kidding. And it's stunning. It's beautifully designed because everything we do is about design excellence and combining design excellence with changing the world. So, you know, if you want to disrupt stuff, you have to provide a, a venue to do that in. And so um, I hope to, uh, you'll join us there soon. I will, for sure. Absolutely. Um, Lauren, where do you get your inspiration from? Everywhere. Um, I shop the world. I'm a readaholic. Um, I look at every magazine I can. Um, I get it from being curious. Um, is that skill of yours then being able to apply all of this or is it pattern recognition what what's the one skill that you kind of need to be able to pull together all the things you've done uh <clears throat> that's a funny thing i might say fearlessness but um you know when i did my first brand i thought 
I got lucky. And when I did my second one, I thought, I actually have an idea of what I'm doing. And when I did my third one, I realized I had a formula. And so I stick strongly to my formula, which is strong about this combination of design and business, being a good person, wanting to make the world a better place, and applying that to every decision that's made around that brand. Lauren, this has been tremendous. Um, I'd love to be able to invite you back to do this again because it's been inspirational and you have much more to tell us in terms of what your story is. So will you join us again for another one of uh, the moment that changed everything? I will, Laurie. Listen, you know, you and I have, um, like a lot of my relationships, um, they go back to high school. Yeah. <laughs> um, they go back to my community and I've been, you know, incredibly lucky to continue to um, bring people into that community. But my strength is that community. My strength is that every, I don't know, three, four years, you and I have a conversation and that conversation inspires me because uh, we stand on the shoulders of greatness. So um, both of us come from parents who were great people, credible people. And um, well, I'm pretty good at what I do. Um, I had this, you know, I've been able to stand on the shoulders of greatness. And I've been able to share that with you over the years because we understand that. And um, I hope that we get to do this more often and that uh, as I, um, uh, develop this uh, psychedelic mental health world that you join me on that journey. With pleasure. So, you know, the next time, what, the next one we'll do will be in 60 days when you open. Yeah, and we can talk then specifically about psychedelics and what we're doing in that industry because that's my passion. And um, uh, we talked about this before is that I've spent, you know, the past three years most of my life, but specifically the past three years, traveling around the world, meeting with, you know, a third of the time kings and queens and prime ministers, and a third of the time speaking to people like yourself and um, conferences, and a third of the time meeting with the um, heads and CEOs of the biggest corporations in the world on how cannabis would affect their life, change their country, change their business. And I'm now doing that exact same thing in um, psychedelics. So I'd love you to be part of that journey and doing and telling that story. It would be terrific. Lauren, thank you for today. And we'll speak in two months. Sounds good. All be the best. Healthy. Wear as well. <laughs> See you, Lauren. See you soon, Lauren. Thanks. This episode has been brought to you by the National Advertising Challenge, North America's only brief-based challenge that sends winners to Cannes, France. 